Welcome to our PQ podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our program or download other podcasts, you can find us at www.pq.cz on our Facebook page or on Instagram. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. My name is Barbara Přihodová and today I have the great pleasure to speak with Arnold Aronson. I believe that Arnold doesn't need a huge introduction within the design community, but anyway, here it comes. He's the Professor Emeritus of Theatre at Columbia University in New York. He's a theatre historian who specializes in scenography and avant-garde theatre, and he has written and edited a number of books on these topics. Most recently, it's the Routledge Companion to Scenography and the second revised edition of the History and Theory of Environmental Scenography. Arnold has had a long history with Praqua Janil. Uh, he's been the president of the International Jury, uh, general commissioner, also curator, editor. And during the last PQ, he was awarded the Best Mentor Award for decades of teaching, pioneering scenography scholarship, and creating dialogue between theory and practice in the international community connected to Praqua Janil. It's so great to have you, Arnold. Thank you for joining us. I want to start from the beginning, sort of. The first question is how or why did you start writing about scenography? Um, that's a good question. I guess it's something that I was always interested in without sort of realizing that I was. My dissertation was on environmental theater, which became my first book. And while it wasn't specifically about scenography, it obviously dealt with that a great deal. In 1976, uh, I became co-editor of Theater Design and Technology, which was the journal of the U.S. Institute for Theater Technology. And it was not the most interesting journal in the world. It had a lot of good articles, but a lot of it was technically oriented. And one day at, at some kind of USITT gathering, a man named Eddie Cook, who was one of the founders of USITT and also a major person in the lighting world, literally grabbed me by the arm and said, you know, as editor of the journal, you should write about American designers. He was upset that they were writing too much about Svoboda and other European designers. So I said, oh, okay. Asked him who he thought I should write about. And the first name that came up was Santo Lacosto. And so it, that was more interesting to me than editing articles about technical aspects of theater. So I started contacting designers and asking if I could interview them and began writing those articles in the journal. And I seemed to have some ability to interpret or analyze the work that they were doing. And not long after that, Theater Communications Group, which is the service organization for uh, the regional theaters in the United States, or the not-for-profit theaters, decided it was going to start a book series. And they thought what would be easiest is for like one of their first books is to have a collection of work that was already written. So, and they approached me about doing something about designers. At that point, I think maybe I had written three essays, but it turned into something bigger and, uh, than that. But that became American Set Design, which was one of TCG's first books. But at any rate, since then, I've been writing primarily about design. And your approach is quite unique, too. Um, I remember myself when I first got to read your book, Looking into the Abyss, what a revelation. It was for me because I, before that, had never encountered anybody who would be connecting design to larger cultural and political issues. 
have you seen scenography always in this way? Uh, who or what has influenced you or inspired you? I don't know that I made a conscious decision to write you know, about design in any sort of a cultural or theoretical context, but it seemed to me that that was what was needed. I could find accounts of you know, descriptions of design, or there was starting to be some scholars who were doing you know, very theoretical work uh, in theater in general, but who didn't really seem to have a grasp of scenography. So I was writing a way to kind of explain it, situate it, to contextualize it. And my background, I'd been an English major in college and, you know, coming out of a PhD program at New York University and having worked in the theater, I sort of was able to bring those two things together. I always felt that my writing was not intended for some esoteric academic audience, but rather for scholars who were interested, but also for practitioners, and I tried to strike that balance. In terms of influences, you know, I was thinking about that, and there are really two people. One was my advisor at NYU, Brooks McNamara. The very first class I took at NYU was his theater history class, and it was a class that was looking at theater history essentially through scenography through theater production. And one of our textbooks uh, was Allardyce Nicole's uh, The Development of the Theater, I think it was called, uh, which was a book about scenography. Obviously Eurocentric, but nonetheless, it, it's where I discovered the Bibianas. It's where I discovered 19th century melodrama, all of that sort of thing. And um, Brooks was also my advisor on my dissertation. So that's one strong influence. I sort of came to the academic study of theater through scenography. And then the person who was my idol was Denis Bablet, French scholar who had this whole series of uh, books. I mean, he had a, a whole academic institution behind him to do it. But it was his book, a uh, series of books, uh, Les Voix de la Création Théâtrale. And each book devoted either to a particular designer or to a movement, such as expressionism and so on. And he's the most brilliant writer about sonography that I know. He also wrote about Edward Gordon Craig. And I think the PQ honored him with an award back probably in, in the 70s, maybe 79, which was much deserved. He unfortunately died too young. But I did have the chance to meet with him and to correspond with him and would have loved to have gone to work with him a bit. So he was a very strong influence on what I've done. And I don't think I've lived up to his example. We've mentioned you have had a long history with uh, Prequadrennial. So when was the first time you were there? What was the experience like? And then do you think that you have had any influence of your thinking about Sidar? I sort of have two answers for when I was first there. The first was virtual. As uh, an editor of Theater Design and Technology, we would publish work about the PQ. That's where I first heard about it. Uh, so the first PQ that happened while I was editor uh, was uh, 1979. Uh, Yarka Burian wrote an article and we had some others as well. I was not at that point. I was just out of graduate school. I didn't have money to go to Czechoslovakia. I got to know about the PQ through the articles that were being written for the journal, which of course I was editing and choosing photographs for. And 83 rolled around and 
I tried to go, uh, but was, again, was not able to afford to go at that time. And there was a second issue uh, of the journal devoted to that. So between the PQ 79 and 83, I felt I knew them well, but virtually as whatever passes passed for virtual back then. And I knew that I had to go. It was just so fascinating because it was really the first time through the the photos that I was seeing, that I was seeing so much of the European work, contemporary European work, that I, for the most part, did not know. And then I went for the first time in 1987. I was able to do that. I guess, technically, I had some connection. I was part of like a large advisory committee for um, uh, the U.S. exhibit that year that ultimately won the, the Golden Triga, uh, but my participation was, was minimal. To go to the PQ in 87 was fascinating on so many levels. One was just the first time in Prague, which was such a city with such history and the sort of a mythology about it for me. But also coming in 87, it was a very depressed city, two or three years away from a change. But then seeing the PQ and you know seeing all of this work that was there and getting to meet more and more people, it was just I found it a remarkable experience. And there were people I met there that for the first time, some of whom I got to know better over the years, a couple of whom I had met at other OISTAT uh, conferences prior to that. I should say that the next time in PQ 91, coming to Prague, it was absolutely remarkable to see how the city had changed in four years for obvious reasons, even on an amusing level, because there were people on Charles Bridge selling surplus Soviet army uniforms. And in the subway stations, there were people selling pornography. So this is what freedom does. But, you know, the city suddenly was alive. It's going slight tangent, but in 87, Poland was already going through its revolution of sort, or it was on the way. Poland's exhibits until that point were always dark and oppressive and obviously represented the feeling of the the scenographers at the time. And suddenly it was starting to change and it was becoming more open and colorful. And the, suddenly the, the, the Polish designers and other representatives there were kind of not exactly teasing the, uh, the Czech people, but sort of saying, you know, what's wrong? Why don't you get out of your depression and join us? But at any rate, it was, you could see that change happening. And to be there in 87, 91, and then 95, and to see that change in process is just an, an amazing experience. Now, uh, we've touched upon the relationship between theory and practice a little bit, saying that you uh, had always clear idea about your audience not being the, the purely academic. In PQ, we are a mix of people who practice uh, scenography. There are people who write about it, and there are people who do both. Uh, what's your uh, view on what is the role of theory in scenography or writing and thinking about scenography and performance design? I think it works in two ways. For the non-practitioners, the non-practicing audience, you know, if I've had a goal all this time, it's to make people aware of scenography and the role that it plays, that it's not just some pretty decoration up on the stage. It's not something incidental. It doesn't happen by itself. It's done by people who have given this a great deal of thought and that the visual and spatial elements of the stage have a profound effect 
the audience reception and the audience response, you are responding to spatial relationships, to textures, to colors, to sounds, to light, all of that is part of it. And so part of what I'm doing, I don't quite think of it as theory so much as trying to show, to explain how sonography works as part of the entire experience of theater. Uh, for practitioners, I think it's there for people who want to think more deeply about the work that they're doing. There are, of course, people who say, you know, I read the script, I talk to the director, do the design. They're not necessarily interested in thinking much beyond that. My experience is that almost any good, intelligent designer is interested in the larger context. And sometimes they enjoy having their own work explained to them, or not as so much explained, but to put into larger context to say, oh, there's this other thing going on, or here's somebody who's like me that I didn't know about. And ideally, and I don't know if this ever actually happens, but ideally it gets them to think about other things that perhaps they might do, and maybe it just deepens their work a little bit more. I'd like to hope so. What has been the greatest challenge for you in your work? I don't know that I have a particular or particularly good answer for that. The challenge, one challenge is that there is not a lot of other work out there about it. Yeah, you can read, you know, certainly historical designers like Craig and Appia uh, who have written about their work or written about design in general, there's that to go to. Most designers don't write about their work. For the most part, they don't have time, and perhaps they don't have the interest or feel that they have the ability. You know, historical can be something that happened last week as well. You know, with a script, you can pick up the script and read it any time. With scenography, as with any aspect of, a, of live theater production, it's preserved in photographs, maybe in more recent times in video. How do you interpret that? Photographs very rarely give you the entire stage. Most commercial theater photography focuses on actors, but even if it gives you an image, it's not the entire context. Video can be better in some ways, but video is flat. I mean, I don't care how well it's done. It's not the experience of sharing a space. So the problem in writing about design is trying to figure out what you're looking at when all you have are the artifacts to look at. Yeah, so that, that's a challenge. So this may be related, but is there a topic you were interested in but never got to write about it? Maybe because you didn't have the material to work with? You know, you provided that question in advance and I've been thinking about that. And the only thing that came to mind is that early on in my career, actually I was still in graduate school, before I kind of landed on scenography, I was thinking of writing a history of acting, which also fascinated me. I obviously never got around to it. And since then, there are people who have gotten around to it. So, and while I'm interested in it, I don't have the interest in doing all the research that would be necessary at this time. But there too, you've got the exact same problem, maybe even a greater problem. A photograph of an actor, a sketch of an actor tells you almost nothing. And to grasp what an actor sounds like, how they moved, what was it that made one actor brilliant and another actor doing exactly the same thing, just a run-of-the-mill actor. So anyway, if my career had taken a slightly different turn, gone down a different path, maybe that's what I would have done. But right now, I'm fine. I don't need to research anything else. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about our program or download other podcasts, 
you can find us at www.pq.cz, on our Facebook page, or on Instagram. You have maybe uh, started answering my next question because I was looking into your teaching and I know you have taught classes on history of design, history of theater, avant-garde performance, but then I saw a theory of comedy and I, I was intrigued. So is that connected to your interest in acting or why, why comedy, theory of comedy? I like comedy. <laughs> Like you know, anybody studying theater, yes, of course, you look at the tragedies because those are the great writers, you know, Aeschylus and Shakespeare and uh, Racine and all of that. But I was always drawn to the comedies. I, I prefer Aristophanes to Aeschylus on some level. But what fascinated me about it is tragedy has a structure. Aristotle provided a you know, one way of looking at it, but you can sort of understand how tragedy works. It's very clear on some level. I mean, you have to be a brilliant writer to make it work, but you can understand the structure. What makes comedy work? And it can be on any level. You know, why, how, how does an actor get a laugh? Why is something funny if it's done one way and not another? But on a larger level, in a comic play, how does the structure of that play develop so that it has a comic payoff? How does it establish things that allow you to laugh beyond just you know, telling a joke or doing something crude. Moliere is tragic and comic. You know, Aristophanes is brilliant. And frankly, Shakespeare's comedies, so-so. So, and even going down to more recent you know, contemporary work, it always interested me about what makes comedy work. And so in this class that I taught a few times over the years, we read all sorts of theory. The fascinating thing is that some of the most serious philosophers in the world uh, and in history have written about comedy, trying to explain it. And some succeed on some level, others don't. Freud wrote about comedy. And so it's something that people have been grappling with forever. What makes us laugh? And is there anything universal to it? So it's, I don't know, maybe someday I'll write something about that, but it's just, uh, you know, it's something that is mysterious and therefore fascinating to explore. One irrelevant anecdote, back in my days as a stage manager, we were working, uh, working at a theater and doing some comic play, I think from the 1930s, and an actor who had a, a certain entrance and always got a laugh. And then at a certain point, he stopped getting a laugh and he was trying to figure out why. And I thought I knew. And so one day I you know, went backstage and I said, you know, I think if you do this, that I might get a laugh. And he kind of looked at me and he said, you're about the 10th person who's offered me advice about what might get the laugh, but he never got it back. I'm sure I was right. It's just something so delicate that some slight shift, whether it's delivery, body, the timing, it's gone. Who are the artists or maybe uh, designers, directors, theater groups that you personally enjoy as a spectator that you maybe like to follow in their work? Hmm. There's a few people and it's you know changed occasionally over time. Very early on when I was still in graduate school, uh, I discovered uh, Richard Foreman and especially at that time, his work was done in a long, very deep 
but relatively narrow loft in the Soho district of New York. And he would play with space, opening and closing that space so that at times you were looking down an 80-foot shaft, at other times it was right in your face. He framed things, he put things in juxtaposition, he combined different eras uh, all in one place. Uh, and it was the most incredible work of theater I had ever seen on any level, but a lot of it had to do with the scenography. Shortly after that, of course, the Worcester Group emerged, and I actually began writing about them. and. Their work also on multiple levels was fascinating, but part of it was the way in which they were using space, using imagery, and the way in which they kept recycling the objects and images of their work throughout much of their, you know, the early years of their existence, so that there was a kind of a scenographic history visible every time you went to one of their productions, because if you had seen the earlier productions, you'd see, you'd recognize an object, or you'd recognize a delineation of space, maybe turned around, and just say, oh, I saw that in the last one. More recently, one of my favorite designers is George Stepin, primarily an opera designer, Russian-born, who just does spectacular work. One of the greatest lighting designers ever, I think, is Jennifer Tipton, who as a designer for theater, for dance, for opera. We use the term magic too easily in the theater, but she does that. And she also worked with the Worcester Group. I mean, she'll work with everything from the most avant-garde to the most traditional. She has a way of creating space and imagery and texture and feeling with a minimum number of lights. I've seen her work off-Broadway with maybe six or eight lights, and somehow it was enough. So she is, without doubt, the greatest lighting designer since Apia. And I unfortunately have never had the opportunity to see work in, sort of, in person of most of the German uh, director-designer teams, which I wish I had. But occasionally they would come to perform in the U.S., mostly at VAM. And so one of the ones I like is, I guess, is the cur uh, current director of the Schaubühne is uh, Ostermeyer and works with Jan Papelbaum. So the things that I've seen at VAM, I've liked the, the scenography very much. And now it's all over the place, so it's sometimes it's not as good as it used to be. But if I go back years ago to the work of Ivo van Hove and his uh, partner, sonographer Jan Versweveld, who also used to do fascinating work, especially with video, breaking up the space. And this, they, I think they literally took this from the Worcester Group, but how the you know, putting video images and video monitors within a space, on the one hand, allows you access to another space, another time, another dimension almost, and breaks up the space of the stage. These days, I think they're just churning it out so fast, and I'm not sure that they're thinking it through maybe quite as well as they used to, or maybe it's just that it's no longer as novel as it used to be. But certainly they were an influence, or certainly it's somebody that I was fascinated with. I'm sure there are others, but those are the ones that come to mind. Maybe anyone from these that you have just mentioned, but is there a project that is emerging for you now, something you want to work on or you're going to be working on in, in the near future? Well, there's actually something I'm working on now. Routledge Press, which did the Companion to Sonography and is also the publisher of our journal, they have a series of books called 50 Key, and then it can be 50 Key, 
historians, philosophers, uh, linguists, whatever. They do it in all fields. I don't know how many dozen books there are in that series. And they asked me to do one on 50 key designers, which I've begun working on and I'm behind schedule. But what was interesting is I discussed it with the editor. Do we do modern, contemporary, or historical? And we decided, and actually this is what I was leaning towards, was going historical. And so the project for me then became picking out who are 50 key designers over a period of time. Uh, I started with uh, Sebastiano Serlio, essentially introduced perspective. He wasn't the first, but he created a whole system of perspective for the stage. And we sort of go on from there. Uh, I think as I go along, I might change some of the people that I picked as I get a better understanding. But it's been fascinating to see, to learn more for myself about when and how certain things developed. Just at the very moment, uh, I'm working on uh, Jacques-Philippe de Lutherberg, who was David Garrick's designer. He came from France to, to London in the 1770s. And I realized that he, which I sort of knew but never quite understood, is that he basically invented lighting design. And he was doing stuff you know, without electricity, but you know, doing stuff in a way that Appiah was doing, but he was doing it 120 years earlier. And so that's exciting to learn, and I hope I can convey some of that. But I really need to settle down and write the book because if there's 50 of them, which basically means churning out a chapter a week, I'm not sure if I'll make the deadline. But anyway, that's what I'm working on. That sounds like a lot of work for sure. Uh, before we go, uh, I do want to get back to the idea of teaching like we said you received the best mentor award for our listeners out there who may be students who are interested in writing about scenography what advice would you give them first of all i was very surprised as well as honored to get that award i don't think of myself as a mentor in part because Ironically, at Columbia University, we have no design program, and the PhD program is very closely intertwined with the English department, so the students who might have been interested in writing about design, there haven't been as many as I wish there had been. Advice is basically to look and to think about what you're seeing an exercise that I've done when I've done workshops, very simple, it's not original with me, is you know start the class, everybody's sitting around a table or whatever, and then shortly into that, I'll sort of pick a student and say, close your eyes, and, that's, and then say, describe the room. And nobody can do it perfectly, of course, but what the exercise is, is how carefully are you looking? How aware are you, you know, where, where your fellow students are? What color clothes are they wearing? Uh, what is the light like in the room? You know, what objects are there? All of those things, which of course, you know, if you're coming into a classroom, that's not necessarily what you're focused on. But if you can take that idea of looking carefully at what you see, because the first thing you have to be able to do is to describe it. And then the second thing is to figure out how it is working in relation to the larger theatrical production. So that's simple but perhaps difficult advice thank you unfortunately our time is up thank you so much for this inspiring conversation oh thanks it's fun to do thank you for listening if you'd like to learn more about our program 
or download other podcasts, you can find us at www.pq.cz on our Facebook page or on Instagram.